the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This, I think, is episode 286. I'm Paul Spain. And I'm Alistair Cook. Hey, Al. Good to, uh, good to have you back. How's things? Really good. Really good. I've been kind of busy and not been traveling to Auckland very much, so I haven't come up and seen you for over a year, I think. It's, been, it's been a really, really long time, so great to have you back in Auckland. Uh, maybe you can remind uh, listeners where you fit into this world of uh, technology. So I work in uh, enterprise IT, and I'm one of the hosts of the V Brown Bag podcast, which is a podcast for people who work in data centers and work in the design of infrastructure for those data centers. Uh, easy to find on iTunes as V Brown Bag. And you're based in uh, Tauranga. I live in Tauranga, and this I've just spent nearly an entire month at home in Tauranga without travelling overseas. Ah, that's uh, that's pretty unusual for you, isn't it? Usually, uh, it is. I spend a lot of time going to conferences in the states and Europe, and uh, making lots of lots more V Brown Bag uh, community generated content and educational content uh, at these conferences. Cool. Well, let's jump. Let's jump in now. Uh, first up, Computex has just started in Taipei, which is usually it's it's a pretty big event there. I recall I've only been once, but we usually expect a bunch of bunch of announcements, uh, especially from um, ASUS, who is sort of the, the the big local player there in Taiwan. Usually, Intel have some some announcements, and uh, you know, I think they've they've got some um, some bits and pieces that will be uh, floating out this week in terms of. New News. But first up from ASUS is their Zenbo robot. A little knee-high rendition of uh, BB-8 almost, and uh, an old iMac that used to have its screen stuck up on a stalk. Yes, it's, it's quite a curious looking, looking robot, isn't it? But it is, I guess, sort of falling into that affordable category and that it costs less than an iPhone, for instance. It's, you know, a 599 US price point. So it's it's priced at that level people would be able to afford them. The question is, a little knee-high robot, what can it offer you that would make you want to get it? Or is it something that at that price people are just going to sort of buy to have a play around with it? I guess you could compare it to the personal assistants that we have built into our phone and to the you could compare it to the likes of, say, an Amazon Echo that's got wheels on it and can move around and it's got a little little screen for a head. There's, they, they highlight that it's uh, good fun for, for kids to keep them entertained, which I guess you can keep kids entertained with a, with a, with a, with a tablet and... And, uh, and other devices, and it's good for keeping a watch on um, health situations for the elderly. Maybe it's got a camera and it can yeah you know, can move around a room a little bit. And it's got connectivity bank and it's got a companion mobile app that the family members could use. It, it looks to me like it's the beginning of something. It doesn't look like a complete product yet. It looks like there's some really cool technology in here that's been mashed up from a, a variety of different existing things like the, the smart device we have it's got a screen and it's got a camera but it doesn't feel like it's actually useful to me yet yes well I think it looks cool um, it's not too expensive so there will be enthusiasts that are just going to jump on even if the whole picture is not there yet I think it, it sort of gives us a little bit of a taste that this whole robotics thing is actually going to get there and in the not too distant future really a lot of the, the, the smarts in terms of machine learning or artificial intelligence type stuff 
is starting to fall into place. The components that we need to make a lot of these things aren't so expensive now. And, you know, of course, we're seeing uh, robotics getting used more and more for industrial purposes. And so the thought of what we what we've been expecting for decades is these robots sort of you know running around as we've seen in sort of you know science fiction movies isn't becoming quite so far fetched anymore, is it? No, and particularly when we start seeing the use of the cloud and big data kind of tools that back in systems like Alexa on the the Echo, the ability to get a lot of intelligence into the device by having the the intelligence remote is I think think one of the key enablers on this and I don't feel like this particular device yet has enough of that intelligence you can't ask it a natural language question you can give it a series of canned commands which to me feels a lot more like the echo I I want to interact with this the way you see on Star Wars where you have a conversation and it's free form and I'm expressing myself rather than fitting into the command sequences required for the device and that will be much much more natural and that's just a matter of time, isn't it? It absolutely is. Thinking about uh, elderly people who might need this, my, my father lives alone, but I can imagine he would be horrified if I brought this thing in and it would never get charged again after its battery ran flat the first time. Well, it would have to be smart enough to be able to go back to it, back to its charging. You know, it would need to have a charging base and dock that it can get back to. Of course, you have limitations in homes with stairs and with natural sort of hazards and so on, right? So Yeah, but on, on the other hand, my, my in-laws, I can imagine, would be quite excited excited about it they would enjoy it so yeah, there, yeah. there's going to be a, a human fit to this as well but there are a few obstacles that will have to be will have to be addressed and and will be as these sorts of things become relevant to a to a broad audience rather than just a small niche of of enthusiasts yeah. and very specific use cases and stair climbing and the ability to open a door both beyond the reach of this device but uh, you can imagine future devices that can cope yep yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a there's a bit of excitement that this whole uh, side of things is, is starting to move along. Now, of course, there's a flip side to it as well, and we heard last week around the rise of the robots in Chinese factories, and we are told that in one factory alone. 60,000 workers have been culled effectively because of their work being outsourced to, or you know, now being carried out by robots. To put that in perspective, that's approximately the population of Napier. Every man, woman and child in Napier no longer having a job at that factory. Now, let, let's not uh, allocate all of that to the the rise of robots there. There is some change in the number of devices that this particular Foxconn factory is producing, but it's still a huge change in, in labour. And what we see is that the automation of processes happens when the cost of labour is higher than the cost of automation. And a, a lot of the manufacturing in China has been manual because the cost of the people has been so ridiculously low. And as those people earn more money and they expect more, the cost of labor goes up. And so the viability of a a non-human option for this manufacturing becomes uh, much more reasonable as as the cost of labor goes up. Yeah, well, I mean, in the the past, you've sort of figured, well, when they can get a a pretty capable robot down to sort of 50,000 or 100,000, then you're talking, oh, well, certainly in a a Western country, that can do an equivalent level of, of work of a person. 
then that's pretty justifiable because it's going to pay itself off within you know, one or two years. But of course, those those economics are somewhat different in a market where what the labour force gets paid is significantly less. And so if they're making these things work in China, highlights just the the low price points that the, the robotics are sort of coming coming down to already if they're able to displace that. Uh, oh, I, I think these robotic um, manufacturing processes have been available in Western cultures where people are much more expensive for a long time. If you've seen some of the videos of some of the manufacturing processes in, in Asia, things that you would think were done by a, a robot are done by a highly skilled very lowly paid person sitting there with a pair of tweezers placing components on circuit boards that anywhere else in the world there will be a machine placing those components. And so I think it's just that the degree of mechanisation that's elsewhere in the world has come to these factories in China. And it's very unfortunate for the people living in, in rural China or these these uh, manufacturing areas where suddenly there's a large number of them are out of work. Yeah, there's certainly going to need to be some work done on what happens when this stuff keeps keeps increasing, which I'm you know I'm sure in China it will continue to uh, to do so. And of course, when you're ma- manufacturing something on mass, 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 and one of the products that uh, that comes to mind, of course, there are very repetitious tasks and functions that need to be done. So you can see how that naturally translates well to having a machine do them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're all fine, detailed, repetitious t- tasks that are quite difficult for humans to do. Well, there are lots of things that are quite difficult for humans to do, aren't there? Although walking upstairs is much easier to do as a human than any robot. For now, for now. But it also requires a bit of energy. So if you need to walk up a thousand flights on a regular basis, I imagine someone's going to find uh, find a way to make a robot do that reasonably well. Well, there was a bunch of firemen who walked up quite a lot of steps up Sky Tower very recently. And, uh, and they, had, they had a pretty hard time. Personally, when I went up Sky Tower, I took the elevator. Yeah, me too. Um, and that, that, yeah, that was what made me sort of think about it. So... Yes, Interest, interesting times ahead. Now, jumping on to other topics. So we've talked a bit about the robotics. Uh, also at Computex, uh, Asus have shown off their Transformer 3, which from all accounts looks just like or very, very similar to Microsoft's Surface Pro 4. Some of the reports are suggesting it's actually going to be a bit, a bit better. Um, a bit uh, slimmer and sleeker, and uh, you know potentially you know right up there in terms of uh, specifications. So this is, is kind of curious to me because if you've got a vendor like um, Asus who you know tend to come in at lower price points, now they won't do with all of their products, but coming up against Microsoft, Microsoft to price their product at the at the top end of the market, it will be curious to see how um, how ASUS do with this. You know, if they get the build quality and all the other bits and pieces right, and they make a reliable product, they could swing in and win a win a chunk of market share because they've got. It looks like they've got docking components and those other bits and pieces that business users would be interested in, uh, which you don't always always see with products from a from a I guess a lesser known brand. Uh, like Asus, and of course, the Surface has been having some reliability. Microsoft have been having some reliability problems with Surface, the Surface, uh, you know, Pro Four, and so on, which have been covered by media around the world. We've talked about some of those here. Certainly, experienced one, one or two of the issues. Um, we will, we'll see when they uh, they swap out the one I'm using at the moment. I think there's a replacement apparently on 
apparently on its way. We'll, you know, we'll see whether I've got a dodgy unit or whether, uh, yeah, whether these things can't be solved. But um, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think? Would you buy an um, ASUS product to, to I, as your main I, workhorse? Um, so I'm all Mac pretty much all the time at the moment. Just a, a couple of uh, Windows tablets uh, still hanging around. But I've liked the Asus gear or Asus, depending upon who you talk to. Um, it's, it's usually well-engineered, well-made equipment. They've been making these two-in-ones for quite a while. And what I think is, is this is a great thing that will be making Microsoft really happy because my general feeling was that they were forced into making the Surface and the Surface range because there'd be no innovation in PC design for a long time. They were all very boring grey boxes and all of the sexy, beautiful gear was coming from Apple and the Surface range was a kick to all of the other vendors, the manufacturers of these um, Windows devices to say, go and do better. And ASUS is stepping up, and these things look to be very nice. They're very thin, light, powerful machine, high-resolution display, all of the things you want, including Thunderbolt 3, which, since I do a bit of video production, Thunderbolt's really important to me. These look like really good pieces of gear, and they have a range from the the Pro version of this uh, Transformer 3 through a standard one, and then there's even a, a budget one with Atom CPUs. So they're doing the full range. If they're also bringing the Enterprise class docking stations, those kinds of things, then they could see really good sales of these. Yeah, I think there's a bit of potential there. I'm uh, I'm not sure. I mean, Microsoft, yes, with some of their products, were trying to um, maybe maybe put a, a, a boot in and give a bit of encouragement to uh, PC manufacturers to do a better job. But now that they're selling, what is it, a, a billion dollars uh, every quarter worth of these products at a very high margin, I'm sure they'd actually be quite comfortable if uh, everyone that was buying a computer bought a Microsoft-branded computer. I don't think that they're probably um, too worried if the uh, the other brands have to fall by the wayside because they win the market share. Yeah, and there is there is a lot to be said for that integrated experience of getting all of the parts from one vendor with the hardware and software all together. Uh, but I don't think that's really the game plan for, for Microsoft. I think they're fairly committed to having hardware vendor partners who, who shipped in. And this looks to be some good good hardware. Yes, well, well, I guess we'll see what time how time goes on that. But you know, at the moment, yeah, they've, they've, they've still got a challenge or two to uh, to overcome with the Surface. Now, one more one more product that uh, that jumped out as being somewhat unusual was the MSI's uh, backpack computer for um, virtual reality use. What's your take on uh, carrying around a? Um, a backpack that's sort of potentially in the direction of around five kilos, about an hour's battery life, so that uh, so that you can immerse yourself into a virtual world. So there's a, there's an assumption that you have an Oculus Rift. Personally, I don't. I have a Gear VR for playing with with virtual reality, and um, one of the attractions of of the Gear VR is there's no trailing uh, trailing cables, whereas with the Oculus Rift you've got a bunch of cables running from this headset down to your PC, and if you're actually walking around the room where you're playing a game on the Oculus, you're going to trip over the cable. So the whole point of this is to have no trailing cables. It's actually got a battery in it, so you can run for on the, the battery that's built into it about an hour's worth of gaming time. They say 
and that's that's a reasonable amount of gaming. I think you're probably going to get some pretty tired legs, particularly if you're a flabby middle-aged geek like myself, by the time you've spent an hour running around the room and tripping over the cat instead of the cables. So it looks really interesting. The problem is that it's a single-purpose PC, and I don't imagine it's going to be cheap. You know, you're not going to use this to do your email as well. It's just going to be your gaming rig. Yeah, uh, they won't be competing on price, will they? No, not being a gamer, I probably wouldn't buy it. But I imagine there are some fairly serious gamers who would be interested in this and, and would be keen to buy, particularly if the parts can be upgraded inside, because that's, again, a pretty common gamer activity is, is hardware upgrades. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's good to see new new things uh, new things coming out, and no doubt there'll be a bunch uh, more from uh, from Computex uh, this time around, being you know really one of the one of the biggest uh, tech shows in the world. Now, oh hey, there's a uh, HP Omen gaming backpack now as well. Oh so really? It's not just MSI. I thought I'd seen that there was a second one as well. So yes, HP have shipped one as well, which actually looks to my eye a little bit nicer. Oh, that's curious. So, yeah, so there's a good good bit of competition. It's a whole new category. It must be there. a good thing. Yeah, well, maybe we'll see uh, see everybody jump jumping in on uh, on that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a huge amount of interest in virtual reality at the moment, and you know, I know a lot of people sort of jumping in there. There's a lot of activity from the developer front, but we still just you know see a massive amount of of content in terms of you know really really great um, yeah, game changing content. Excuse the uh, yeah game changing game the reference yeah. Um, now on to on to other topics. Came across the concept of micro drones. Now we've heard about these in the past, but there are some micro drones designed out of um, Harvard University, and they're being called uh, micro bees. Now. I don't know if you had a you had a look at the uh, the imagery on on these L, but they're they're quite a unique little uh, design with these uh, little little wings, and um, they've got a, a disc that allows them to uh, basically hang on to things rather than with traditional limbs, but with um, with static electricity. Yeah, so charging up a plate that's attached to the body of this. Um little tiny drone and it really is tiny they're talking about it being a tenth of a gram total weight for the drone and apply a charge to the uh, to this plate and it will, will stick to any material so they're talking here about the challenges of having these tiny drones actually take a rest and not have to hover because they've had a tenth of a gram you haven't got much battery capacity uh, and so they talk about the challenges and what they seem to have come to is, is that this static electricity that they can apply a charge it'll stick to something and they just release the charge and it comes off, they don't have to pull it away they don't have to um, pull any talons out of the, uh, the aluminium pipe or whatever it is you've stuck to it looks really cool and they said the mechanism requires about 1,000 times less power uh, to stick than it does to be uh, flying around. So, yeah. So, yeah, so it's very, very, very efficient. Yeah, the challenge is whether you, your uh, battery life for doing the actual work that the drone is sent to do will last 1,000 times as long. 
Oh, it's uh, it's cool. We, I, we're going to see a whole lot of these things, and at the moment, they they all do seem quite sort of futuristic. But realistically, when you can make something that small and that light, these things are going to be very very low cost ultimately to uh, to produce. And you know, the idea of everybody having drones and all sorts of technology to do their bidding is uh, is not too far fetched when you uh, when you think a few years out. Not quite sure what I would um, what yeah. I would use my uh, my Robo Bees for. I, I see far more potential for these for for uh, spy movie use than uh, use by civilians. But it, it is interesting seeing some of the things. There was a movie recently that uh, was talk, was showing uh, fictional drones. I cannot remember the name of this one where there was a whole heap of surveillance drones around as they were making critical decisions to send in the Hellfire missiles or not. And uh, I think that is the use case that we'll see for these kinds of tiny drones. I struggle to find um, anything that comes to mind in a normal civilian everyday use that would would benefit from this that would allow it. Yeah, I guess it's the not having to get up off the couch to go and look at something, to go and do something. There'll be some sort of robotic device that can go and do it for you. Which probably yeah, isn't, isn't, isn't a particularly, robot isn't a be, particularly yeah. healthy uh, use necessarily of some give, of give the Give me the Zenbo for that right? one. Uh, yeah. I think he'll he'll go and do my bidding because I have an app that I can watch what's on his camera on my phone. And because yep. he rolls, he'll have battery life for days. Yes, uh, we'll roll roll on the uh, the rolling robots now. As well as that, there's been some some details come through of a robotic arm that's being researched in Australia, I think uh, in Melbourne. And what they're looking into is the idea of being able to give uh, amputees an opportunity to regain their sense of touch. Of course, there are work done uh, down the track of giving giving movement and so on with, with artificial sort of robotic limbs. But this next phase of, of research they're doing around the, uh, the prosthetic limbs is that the, uh, the, the limb or the robotic arm would be able to send signals back to the brain to give that sensation of um, touch that would allow you know, somebody with one of these to sort of you know, feel what's going on effectively. If they can pull this off, it sounds uh, sounds really cool. Yeah, and it, it deals with one of the really challenging problems with making an actual prosthetic hand is that when you as a human pick something up, you can judge how much force to use to pick up pick up an egg with a small amount of force or a, a lettuce with a small amount of force. But the knife that you need to cut the lettuce, you pick up with a larger amount of force. And you judge that based on the feedback from your fingers about how much force you need to, to actually securely hold something. Artificial limbs don't give you that feedback yet. And this is, this is huge. This is going to make artificial limbs that sort of Star Wars usability like a, a normal limb or It'll get there eventually, but it's it is definitely this feedback loop is a critical part of how we use our hands, use our limbs, and not having it for somebody who's using a, a prosthetic is really impedes their ability to, to actually use the prosthetic. Mm, mm. No, it's it's pretty curious stuff. It sounds like they're, they're making some some progress. They're saying they've been able to send brain signals to the robotic arm. You know, they've been doing this research for a number of years, and and now they're really investigating how to return. Um, you know those those signals back to give that sensation of uh, of touch. So this is certainly be one I'll be uh, I'll be following with curiosity because you know, there there are so many people that are impacted in one way or another, 
and I guess there's, there's, there's probably an increased level of um, you know, independence for those that would have access to this sort of technology would probably be the key thing that it would uh, would it would would bring to them. That would be that would be my guess. Now, the world of cybersecurity, there's there's been a whole lot going on in this world, and um, lots of coverage across varying uh, media. The New Zealand Herald published another story that. Um, is, is similar to the one that we've heard uh, in the past, and um, they highlighted a, uh, a building firm that had sent invoices out to people that were expecting invoices, but those invoices were modified, so the recipient basically got wrong bank account details, and they've dropped that uh, that money into uh, basically into a hacker's account and. Um, then that money's disappeared. Who do you think is at fault when this type of type of thing happens? Because reading this particular piece, there was uh, reference to one like subscriber to uh, Consumer New Zealand. They lost $14,000 in the scam, uh, contacted her bank only two days after making the payment. I don't know how they knew so long uh, or so quickly, should I say. And... They're still waiting to hear the investigations, but we've heard of a situation where um, somebody else was uh, was returned half of what they lost as a goodwill from their bank, uh, but the bank was really just doing exactly what they were instructed to do. So Kiwi Bank uh, apparently gave somebody uh, $3,300 back when they'd lost $6,600. Well, I think that's very nice of Kiwi Bank to go beyond what would be a, a reasonable expectation and uh, help out its customers. Uh, on the other hand, it'll be worth $3,300 worth of goodwill and publicity that they'll have received. I think the, the critical part here is the path of trust between the building companies that seem to have been the targets here, between them and their clients who are going to send them the money and getting that invoice through a trusted path seems to have fallen down. Now, we don't have a lot of detail in this article about what that path was, whether it was that um, there was an e- email man-in-the-middle attack had occurred, whether somebody had been uh, had compromised the actual client who was supposed to receive the invoice and had tampered with the invoice in transit. We, we don't have any details of that. But it does seem pretty clear that the bank had done nothing wrong, had done exactly as the bank's customer instructed and uh, that there's, there's, I'm not quite sure what the lesson is to learn here. Yeah, I mean, from the, the, the situations like this I've heard about, they do seem to be at the end of the persons of the organisation sending out the invoices. It tends to be more than one is just you know, happening. So you, know, you would expect if it was at the recipient's end, then you you know you've just got one of their customers that that's getting hit. But you know if this is happening to multiple customers, it, it sounds like an issue. In this case, with the with the builder that have been sending out the invoices, and so while well, it's not that not their fault they got hacked, but you know ultimately if they send out an incorrect invoice and that gets to their recipients and those recipients pay their bill, that that customer would feel, hey, I've paid the bill. This is this is really not my issue. 
I got your invoice and I paid it. Now, you know, if you allowed the wrong thing to get to me, that's um, you know, that's maybe the, the builder's issue. Oh yeah, if if um, you know, in, in my accounting system, there's a place where you put in the bank account number that you want to receive payment on, and um, I don't check that the invoices I generate contain that information correctly when I see, send each invoice out. So uh, it's I can imagine that uh, if that particular system got compromised, and particularly if it was an online accounting system with, and I had set up poor security on it then it would be relatively easy to, for uh, somebody to compromise my accounting system and then every invoice would go out with the wrong bank account number and some of my customers would simply send the money to the right bank account number because they don't look for it. They've got it set up in my, my uh, profile in their accounting system. But a new customer or a customer that, that changed their processes may well send money to the wrong bank account. Yes, I mean, it's certainly uh, something that we've warned people about in the past and I know for, uh, for Gorilla Technology, Last year, we changed our bank account, and you know we actually had to talk to most of, if not all, of our customers to say, "Hey, I don't think you contacted us to check that that was actually a correct and legitimate change." Um, and we've we've heard of people being scammed in that sort of way in the past. So yeah, now that's part of our uh, you know our our cybersecurity uh, training processes is talk to people about those sorts of risks. You know, there are. Um, there are big opportunities for people to lose money, and there has been there's a significant amount of money that uh, New Zealanders are are already losing. You know, I think the government indicating sort of in the direction of quarter of a billion, uh, based on what they've been able to, based on the the, the figures that they have. Um, but I think that sort of thing will uh, will really only increase, won't it, in the, in the in the short term? Yeah, and I think New Zealand, out the nature of our society and our business, is built on a lot of trust and simple relationships. You know, a handshake is a contract to many New Zealand businesses, and the idea of not being able to trust anything is just not part of our culture. And that's that's how we're at risk here. It is one of those things where we do need to be more worldly in some ways, more open to the idea that there are bad actors out there and that there is nothing wrong with going back and questioning a communication. This comes back to the same thing we've seen with cybersecurity of the email saying, please send you know, $20,000. The email appears to come from the CEO, but in fact it comes from a scammer. You know, it's returning to that how much trust, how much can we question everything, and building a culture within the organisation that says it's, it is okay to question, that trust should be checked rather than guaranteed. Now, also on that front, uh, more password-related uh, issues. So password leaks, we heard... I think it was last week uh, around LinkedIn and what was that? I think well over 100 million uh, passwords that, that were leaked. These weren't brand new passwords, but if people have kept the same password for a number, number of years, then, uh, then they're at risk. Then we also heard about Tumblr recently. And then the latest one is MySpace passwords, 427 million MySpace passwords. I never knew they ever. Had, I didn't realise MySpace ever had that number of uh, number of users. But I, I uh, guess that's all of the accounts that have ever existed on MySpace. I'm not sure many of them still exist historically. Yeah, yeah. and the uh, the Tumblr one also was historic passwords. They were from 2013, mm-hmm. and the LinkedIn ones from 2012. But if you're not changing passwords, if you're retaining the same password for a long period of time, these ones do expose you. Particularly since most of these sites will use your email address, and if you keep the same 
email address and the same password for long enough, then it does become a risk. Yeah, so I mean, it highlights even big organisations have poor strategies around the way that they that they're storing you know passwords or password uh, hashes. You're also a risk from these historic ones because these are three, four years ago. The state of the art of how you stored a password was different from how it is now. And this, again, speaks to retaining your password for a long period of time. It doesn't protect you against historic data, which is which is compromised, that would now not be compromised. You know, LinkedIn's passwords haven't been compromised recently because presumably they're better protected than they were four years ago. Uh, good good point. Um, so, the, I mean, the big reminder there is you know, keeping unique passwords across different systems that you use that uh, you know that brings its own challenges with it but uh, you know it's something you've got to get your head around an, an appropriate uh, method whether it be a, a technique that you can use so you can remember these different combinations or whether it's it's using some you know, some tools to assist but there you know there are lots of mechanisms for how to uh, how to address that well there's a few there's a few mechanisms that work well yes i personally am a fan of a password manager i use roboform and it has a tool for generating complex random passwords i'm not a fan of a systematic uh, password creation because if your system is visible in the password it can be used to, to guess passwords on another system so if you always put the site name and and some you have to be pretty smart if you're going to use a mechanism like that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I can imagine that three months down the track, I'd forget the nuances yeah. of, of those passwords. I sometimes yeah. uh, have to to look up what password I used for my password manager because I have a, a pretty complex initial password for my password manager. Yep, and it's certainly a, certainly a, a good good approach. Um, now, what's been happening in the world of ransomware? We've had a little bit of a change there recently, haven't we? In terms of, you know, usually when somebody you know pays out to get their data back, they've been they've been hit by a, a crypto locker type uh, type incident, one of these ransomware attacks. Usually, they pay up and they get their data and everything's good. But what's what's happened recently? Well, it was another hospital that got struck, and you'll recall that it was a hospital hit a little while ago that had a long time before they paid their ransom. This this other hospital, more recently struck, uh, it was an eye hospital in Wichita, Kansas. Um, they paid up, and then they got a subsequent demand for more, that they couldn't unlock all of their files. It sounds a little bit like they got a subsequent reinfection. So a uh, first infection got paid. So encryption occurred, payment was made, decryption occurred on those files, but then they found that there was a, a second uh, infection had occurred. And over time, the amount that is demanded in Bitcoin goes up. So you can imagine the help desk system said, yes, we've got one crypto locker infection, and every report that we get must be this one infection. The first infection's paid off, and then they find there's a second one, and now even more time has expired on the clock. Uh, these infections typically come in through unpatched systems. So one that I, I went out and I actually interviewed a customer who had had one of these um, infections, and they told me that they had were about to retire a Windows XP system, so it was a bit behind on patching, and that was the vector of attack that a compromised email came in, struck that machine, and this was a uh, credit union, and so the machine had access to a file share that contained a critical part of their banking application that then got encrypted, and they couldn't no longer uh, process any banking transactions until they, they resolved out their, their crypto problem. And the, the, the risk here is how long does that take and will you still be in business after you've resolved it? Uh, that's, you know, it seems to be 
that there's a there's a, there's often a, a high chance that's, that an organisation will uh, will fail if they've hit by something in a major way and aren't well prepared enough for how they deal with it. Yeah, the the studies are that if your critical systems are out of operation for ten days or more, there's a fifty percent chance that within the next twelve months you'll be out of business, and that goes for small and large businesses. Um, the particular story I was was reporting on for this one was that the the uh, customer had a virtualization platform because I work in virtualization space, and their virtualization platform would do point in time full data copies of the virtual machines that were affected, so they could roll back to about thirty minutes before the infection, and it took them seconds to roll back. So that was a great success story. But it was a horrible infection story. There are, there are people who probably don't sleep so well uh, on the occasional night as the, the thought that this might be happening again comes back. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And then we're we're hearing about um, a new vans- uh, ransomware uh, variant called um, Z Cryptor or Z Cryptor, as we'd probably say here um, in New Zealand, and. It's basically um, able to uh, able to sort of spread itself around a uh, an, a network in varying ways, pushing itself onto removable drives and network drives and and so on, and get itself a little bit uh, further afield within an an environment, which um, I guess is something to be expected that. We will we will see a mix of variations on what we've had to start with, which you know the, the, most of the ransomware you you know somebody clicks on something in the wrong place and it gets onto just their machine. But of course, there's a lot of money to be made from this stuff, so they're going to keep pushing pushing the boundaries old and new, aren't they? Absolutely, and and if they start cycling their encryption keys, which is what you're paying them the the money to get back from them, as they start running through a larger network and cycling the encryption keys as they hit each machine, then they can still keep the amount they're asking for fairly small. But the amount that they actually make gets larger for each large, based on the size of the the, uh, the business that they infect. So I can see this being a very great business decision for the um, the uh, crypto locker or the ransomware vendors. Pretty scary though if you're in a large organisation. But if you have a, a good antivirus solution in play, it should see these change behaviours. It should see that the self propagation behaviour of a piece of software, um, and, and it should respond to that. Uh, however, you've got to be a fairly large organisation to have that kind of antivirus product in play. Yeah, it's pretty pretty hard to capture these these things. I think in a lot of cases, so there's a lot of uh, best practices and things that need to be need to be followed to uh, to bring that risk risk down. And and of course the uh, you know the educational aspect there in terms of uh, you know awareness training for uh, for people in terms of the, what what are the sorts of things that they should be looking out for. There was one other piece of um, of ransomware news that that went in completely the opposite direction. Uh, that I read that there was one group that had produced some ransomware who decided to go out of business and rather than just walking away and leaving their ransomware out in the wild, they published the encryption key, the actual master encryption key that can be used to access all of the other encryption key. So anybody that gets infected with their particular strain of ransomware can actually go and uh, most of the AV vendors have access, have, have on their, their response websites links to this information. They can go and use this universal key to decrypt, which is 
a really odd thing for uh, the ransomware vendors to have done. There's, there seems to be some sort of remorse that they've set this thing out there. So when you say they were going out of business, it wasn't because they weren't making millions of dollars of cash. You think there might have been some other uh, reason that they exited. They made their money and uh, they've got enough and they're, they're getting out the re- like the reformed drug dealer or something. Yeah, my, my suspicion is that there, there was some kind of uh, coercion to release the keys somewhere along the way. Mm. I don't, mm. don't imagine that they started building it with the objective of getting enough money for a new Lamborghini and then stopping. Curious. Uh, well, I think that just about brings us to the end of this episode. Um, oh, one, one thing that I, that I should mention is that we have a new podcast on, uh, the, on the network, on that podcast New Zealand. So for those who are into food and into podcasts and I guess if you're listening to this you probably find the podcast medium something that's um, that's reasonably enjoyable if you're into food and you're into podcasts then um, worth having a look out for the uh, food family and friends podcast which is it's really all all about how uh, how food can bring people together so all the social aspects and the, the family aspects and so on of, uh, of getting together around doing some cooking together or getting around um, around the, the, the table and uh, and eating. There's some quite fascinating stories. There's, there's a whole bunch of guests who have already recorded episodes and it's hosted by Vanessa Baxter, who uh, who some people may well have, have come across. She was on uh, MasterChef a few uh, seasons ago. She's an Australian, but we won't hold hold that against her. Uh, it's been in New Zealand about uh, about four years. It's been a lot of time travelling and, and living overseas, Southeast Asia and so on. So all sorts of sort of foodie type stories and yeah interviews really people from a whole mix of backgrounds from the um, well-known chefs the likes of Michael Meredith uh, through to the people with food stories from New Zealand and, and around the world so I was intrigued that her first episode was interviewing her own teenage children having teenage children of my own I know they have far more opinions and, and far more thought out opinions than you might expect so that, so that looks to be a really interesting episode yeah no it was good because her um, her kids mostly grew up in, in Southeast Asia and so some quite fascinating you know stories of, of their times at discovering different different foods um, I think you know one of them was was sharing how uh, you know how he really clicked on to pizza and I think it was when when they were in Vietnam and I'm try, trying to re, trying to remember because there have been lots of different stories but I think it might have been if I've got the, the one right it might have been visiting uh, friends that were Russians and that they were called Cooking the pizza, but there, there's all these uh, all these stories anyway. Through and I've sat in on a few of the episodes for uh, that have been recorded. Some of them that are done over Skype with uh, people from around the world, and um, you know others with with chefs that are, for instance, visiting New Zealand. Um, so it's quite a big mix of, of audience. And in fact, this is the third, first podcast uh, that we're launching under our new uh, international brand, which is WorldPodcast.com. So there will be more more podcasts that will be will be launching. Uh, both from New Zealanders and 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 from podcasters internationally under that that brand that maybe have broader appeal than just a New Zealand audience, which of course has been the focus for the likes of the New Zealand Tech Podcast and the New Zealand Business Podcast. 
So yeah, encourage um, anyone that's interested in a bit of food to uh, to go and have a have a listen in. Would love to hear uh, feedback, as I'm sure uh, Vanessa would via uh, social media channels and and so on. There will be by the end of this week, there'll be four episodes uh, online. So uh, so a little bit there to be able to binge on, uh, and then uh, you know we'll regularly be having new episodes coming out every uh, uh, every Thursday morning uh, going forward. So, uh, so that's our little uh, little update. Now, Al, where do people uh, contact uh, contact you if they want to get in touch online? You're uh, you're still a regular on Twitter. I'm still a, you know, a lurker on Twitter and very active when I'm at uh, geek events. So I'm on Twitter as DemitasNZ, and you can find my blog at demitas.co.nz, and you can find the V Brown Bag podcast at vbrownbag.com. Excellent, excellent. Uh, you can track me down. Um, now, I'm going to share my Facebook because I'm doing more and more that I'm sharing of little live videos and, and bits and pieces through um, through Facebook. So if you're on Facebook, feel free to follow me there, um, facebook.com slash Paul Spain. Of course, I'm still on Twitter at Paul Spain. And feel free to connect with me on um, on LinkedIn or, or any other uh, channels. But, uh, yeah, Facebook seems to sort of be in- increasing in its, in its relevance. Now they've got... These, uh, the the Facebook Live for videos and I don't know. Just it just seems that uh, that's where where a lot of people are. So I'm, I'm using cool a little kids bit are more. back on Facebook. Well, I don't I don't know quite about that, but yes, it's uh, it's okay that Facebook sometimes. Um, some people are completely leaving Facebook, and that's understandable too. But that's us for this week. So thanks everyone for listening in. Uh, we will of course be back again next week with another another episode. And uh, and do feel free to uh, to get in, get in touch uh, through those channels. Um, you can also reach me on email paul.spain at globalvoicemedia.com is my uh, podcast email address. All right, that's us. Thanks very much. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.